Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 18th of December, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, and delighted to be here with Mike Robinson, of course. And we're also joined by Mark Anderson from Texas, USA. Uh, we will start with the uh, PPE scandal. This is uh, protection equipment, medical protection equipment. Uh, and on screen, we have the PPE MedPro uh, website. This belongs to PPE MedPro, as you might expect. Uh, and of course, they uh, received £200 million or so in government contracts uh, during the COVID pandemic. Uh, now, why is this a scandal? It's because uh, uh, Doug Barrowman uh, owns, or at least is a director of the company, and his uh, wife, the Tory peer, uh, Michelle Mona, uh, they are accused of some kind of uh, corruption, perhaps, in getting that uh, contract in the first place. Uh, now, Michelle Mona was interviewed uh, on the BBC yesterday by Laura Kunzberg. Let's just have a brief listen to one of the things she said. But Michelle, it does feel like the truth has had to be dragged out here. Not really, Laura, because no? the only thing I'd say to you is the only error that I have made is say to the press that I wasn't involved. But you repeatedly didn't tell the truth whether it's the money, whether it's your involvement, whether it's whether you had to tell Parliament, it's a smokescreen. Well, that's why we're here today doing an interview. But do you after see two why years. people listening might feel that? But that's why we're explaining yeah. to people. What do you hope that 2024 will bring for you legally, for your reputations, and for you personally? I don't honestly see there's a case to answer. Um, I can't see what we've done wrong. Um, Doug and the consortium have simply delivered a contract, a delivery contract of goods. But after everything, you can't see what you've done wrong when you've admitted today that you lied to the press and That's by extension you lied to the public. You, Laura, saying to the press I'm not involved to protect my family, can I just make this clear? It's not a crime. The press have got nothing to do with my family. I was protecting my family. So the question is, what's going on here? Now, they are, they are subject to a national crime agency investigation at the moment. That's ongoing. Uh, and of course, she has absolutely denied that she had anything to do with the procurement of this contract. Um, so in 2021, the, the UK government published this document, PPE procurement in the early pandemic. And this came in response to a freedom of information request by the Good Law Project. Uh, and they made public of all the companies that were awarded contracts uh, via what was called the VIP lane. Um, and uh, well, if we uh, just have a look at uh, the documentation here. We'll just look at the P's, uh, routes used to identify suppliers in the high priority lane. Uh, this included PPE MedPro Limited, and it says there absolutely that the source of the referral uh, to the government for the potential contract was Baroness Mona herself uh, via the office of Lord Agnew. So the question is, uh, is she right to suggest uh, that really she did nothing wrong? And uh, the fact that she didn't tell the truth to the press, actually isn't uh, breaking the law. Well, indeed, it probably isn't. Now, uh, we should make the point that The Telegraph, uh, a couple of days ago, published this, uh, where they said, because one of the allegations against uh, the uh, PPE MedPro is that the, uh, the garments that they were, the protective garments that they were providing were not fit for purpose, and that PPE MedPro is now being sued by the British government. Uh, but this article in The Telegraph says that the Cabinet Office approved the hospital gowns made by the firm uh, and that they'd been, from a technical perspective, approved. Uh, this is what uh, they were tweeting out, or what she was tweeting out today, uh, sorry, last week. Uh, my husband and I have been used as a scapegoat by the government uh, for their own failings on PPE procurement. And I think this is a very good question. Uh, are they being used as a scapegoat? Because if we actually uh, go back to 2022, uh, we see this from uh, the UK, UK Parliament Public Accounts Committee. Uh, four billion pounds of unusable PPE bought in the first year of the pandemic will be burnt to generate power. Uh, and if we look at some of the text on this, uh, they say the Department for Health and Social Care lost 75% uh, of the 12 billion pounds it spent 
on PPE in the first year of the pandemic. So we're talking about a 120 million pound or a 200 million pound contract in the case of PPE MedPro, which seems like pretty small beans compared to the loss of 75% of 12 billion pounds. It goes on to say, uh, including 4 billion pounds of PPE that will be not, not be used in the NHS and needs to be disposed of. One of the points that she makes is that the DHSC bought PPE uh, f on contracts for five years, knowing full well that, in fact, its shelf life was two years, so there's no possibility of them using all that PPE in the time. Uh, and this goes on to say, in a report today, the Public Accounts Committee says that as a result of the DHSC's haphazard purchasing strategy, 24% of the PPE contracts awarded are now in dispute, including contracts for products who are not fit for purpose and one contract for three and a half billion million sorry 3.5 billion gloves uh, where there was an allegation of modern slavery against the manufacturer so uh, clearly this is an extremely dirty business um, from start to finish and uh, I just wonder whether uh, the P uh, PPE MedPro scandal is being used as a cover or diversion. Uh, well, that that would certainly make sense to me. Of course, the whole pond around COVID and the pandemic, the pandemic was dirty, where nobody really knew what was going on as, as these things were brought in almost overnight with no proper parliamentary debate. Now, what they need, of course, is a scapegoat in order to try and take the heat off the whole of the government Westminster system, which did the damage. Mm. So I think you've got one more. No, no, you? okay. oh, you've moved through that one. Right. Well, let's come on to another subject where it seems to me at least that the government wants to lie and lie again, and that is migration. Now, this is a headline from the BBC, which uh, was dated the 23rd of November. So I missed it at the time, but the headline, very clear, U UK net migration in 2022 revised up to a record 740 5,000 people. I've just uh, labelled that uh, BBC trumpeting success. I'm being sarcastic, of course, but uh, it's beginning to fall. And if you get into the text, uh, whilst it starts off saying that uh, the whole thing's in chaos, this has just been caused by the Conservative Party, uh, the British taxpayer is going to have to fund the mess. Uh, we then come into a um, quote here from Professor Brian Bell. He told the BBC's World at One that net migration is very high in the UK relative to historical trends, but there's probably some indication it's beginning to fall. Well, that's a pretty optimistic statement, but he does say I wouldn't bet my house on it. I'm sure he wouldn't, but I think we've reached the peak. Well, uh, does he? I think this is all pretty incredible stuff. Now, I've cheated a little bit here because I've, got, I've gone to BBC Bite Size for a little video clip where um, they're giving a little bit of a childish uh, description of what uh, migration and immigration is all about. I have edited this, so it's the start of the clip followed by comment at the end of the clip. But let's have a look at what the BBC had to say. Invasion, conquest, trade, empire, persecution, industrialization, famine, war and globalisation have all influenced the migration of people in and out of Britain since Roman times. So the government turned to the fast disappearing empire, advertising in the West Indies for workers. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, the flow of economic migrants from Commonwealth countries steadily increased. But many of the new arrivals faced racism as part of daily life. In the 1965 Race Relations Act, the government made it illegal to treat people differently because of their colour, race, ethnicity or nationality. In 1971, the Immigration Act meant that British passport holders born overseas could only settle in Britain if they could prove that a parent or grandparent had been born in the UK, effectively limiting immigrants from former colonies to whites only. This two-pronged policy of trying to curb immigration but also protecting the country's immigrant population continued throughout the 1980s. On the 1st of May 2004, the European Union was expanded 
allowing migrants from Central and Eastern Europe to travel freely to the UK, swelling Britain's already large Maltese, Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot populations. Modern Britain celebrates its diverse, vibrant and multicultural society, but immigration is not without its challenges. The number of refugees fleeing to Britain to escape persecution in their home countries has increased since the UK signed the UN Convention relating to the status of refugees. And since the 1990s, immigration has been a growing political issue. Economic migrants from the EU and refugees fleeing conflict in the Middle East, mixed with the rise of nationalist political parties, has led to all political parties feeling the need to appear tough on immigration. Debate on immigration, race and ethnicity has been with us for many years and it would seem that it isn't going away any time soon. So there we are. Of course, it's a BBC clip aimed at children, but we'll use it for the audience. The BBC seems to treat adults in UK in exactly the same way. Um, but it's put across as though all these things have happened. It's a bit of a mystery how they've happened. And the BBC doesn't quite understand how it's happened and what the implications are. But I was stunned on Sunday to find this, the Sunday Telegraph, uh, with a headline with uh, Rishi. Let's have a look at it. And what does he say? Hostile states using migration uh, to destabilize the West. Uh, he said, Rishi Sunak said, hostile states will increasingly drive people to our shores to destabilize Western nations unless leaders crack down on illegal migration and revamp conventions. So this is Rishi apparently starting to get tough. Here's the editorial from the Sunday Telegraph. It would be easy to view the government's attempt to clamp down on illegal migration as an unmitigated failure. So everything to do with migration is it's a failure. People are puzzled as to how it's happened. Uh, but let's look at some of the, the bullet points in this editorial. Until very recently, few dead voice concern over the numbers that cost the lawlessness and the societal implications uh, to rights because you were stamped on if you did. Rishi Sunak is gradually beginning to adopt a more radical position. No explanation as to what that position is or what he hopes to achieve. He's warned that crushing the criminal gangs may require amendments to the refugee frameworks introduced in the post-war period. So the gangs takes the focus, not the overall numbers of the migrants. Uh, let's carry on through. Now more than 100 million are displaced. That's dropped into the editorial with no comment at all. Um, presumably the editor was totally surprised at this number, but it's happened by accident. The old principle of non-refoulement no longer works. That's sending uh, migrants back to their place of origin where they could uh, come to harm. It needs to be replaced by an approach based on decency and compassion, not entitlement. Maybe a bit of common sense there. But now we're getting into the meat of it. Finland's decision last month to hastily shut down crossing points with Russia over concerns the Kremlin was engaged in hybrid warfare, weaponizing migrants to sow discord, was a stark reminder that securing our borders is of critical national interest. So it's those nasty Russians, it would appear. Um, it, uh, here are the figures. In 2022, net migration reached 745,000. Uh, recent pro-Palestine marches have laid bare the frightening implications of failure to integrate. So if you stand up to talk about peace in the Middle East and Gaza in particular, uh, you're a concern and not a suitable immigrant. Uh, reform of global asylum rules, explicit measures for curbing legal migration and faster processing of genuine refugees must all be in the Tory manifesto. The status quo is both dangerous and unsustainable. Well, indeed it is. But of course, what we're looking at has been created. Um, this is more of the Telegraph, where very quickly the Telegraph is absolutely uh, pro-Israel and absolutely against any of the Palestine, uh, Palestinian marches. And extremism features greatly in this edition of the paper. But let's get into the meat of it, because if you look at the government's own documentation, we can find a lot of background and people really need to pay attention to this. Why do people come to work in the UK? Well, here we see very clearly up to September 2023 that skilled workers, health and care 
have been attracted into the country. They have been encouraged to come into the country. And of course, they're going to replace jobs um, from held in UK by existing people. The government and its policy is drawing people into UK. And when they leave their nation states, of course, their own countries are going to suffer from their departure. Uh, have a look at the statistics here, plus 135%, the percentage change in health and care workers. And this is for an NHS which can't provide the service to the existing UK population. No doubt that's Putin's fault. Uh, well, it's all Putin's fault, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, but this is where we get into the, uh, nut, uh, uh, the nuts and bolts of the thing. Of course, it is a plan. The migration is a plan. Here's the United Nations General Assembly regulations adopted on 19th of December 2018. It's talking about safe and orderly regular migration. So there's no question that if we dig into this, this is policy which is actually being run um, from the depths of the global order with the UN at the heart of it. And of course, Sir Peter Sutherland, who uh, died a couple of years ago, but was the uh, UN ambassador on migration, is on public record saying that we, he and his team needed more mass migration to break down the homogeneity of nation states in the West. And of course, that is the plan that's been undertaken over a great many years. Uh, Mark, uh, what have you got on this topic? Uh, good day, gentlemen. Uh, yes, I remember meeting Peter Sutherland at a 2014 Trilateral Commission meeting and actually got to sit down with him and debate him on free trade. I'll share that maybe an extra. Anyway, what we have here is an NBC News item, uh, very complimentary to Brian's report today, uh, but a slightly different tack. Um, this headline, Border Policies Under Consideration, could overwhelm system, DHS officials warn. Now, this is sort of the Orwellian view of the Department of Homeland Security. Keep in mind that that mega bureaucracy was created in the wake of 9-11. Before that, we had no Department of Homeland Security. And what they're basically saying, and this, this gives an essence of it in this next slide, DHS officials are warning about the impact of policies being discussed in negotiations between the White House and Congress that would increase deportations, deny many migrants the right to seek asylum, and make detention mandatory, according to current and former officials who spoke to NBC News. One current Homeland Security official was quoted as saying it would break the border. Another warned it would be completely counterproductive. And what's really topsy-turvy here is that the border is already broken. And it's been allowed to get this bad with this mega invasion at places like Eagle Pass, Texas, at places like Tucson, Arizona. And so then when Congress tries to intervene and say, we've got to stop the invasion and we, we need to detain more people and deport more people, suddenly the DHS starts screaming, oh, that's going to break the border. It will overwhelm the detention centers. And yes, that's true. But DHS was instrumental in letting it get this bad in the first place as a policy. And Mayorkas, the head of the DHS, has been grilled in Congress. <clears throat> Congressmen have told him, look, we think it's more or less DH policy to foster this invasion. And then when we try and do something about it, you say that that'll break the border. Then the congressmen shoot back. You've already broken the border, Mr. Mayorkas. And that's the essence of what's going on. So it's this topsy-turvy Orwellian argument by DHS to prevent any effective action from happening to eventually turn the tide on this invasion here in Texas and the other border states. Anyway, moving on from there, um, I did a little scouting myself. I've got a couple of uh, original pictures I took this past Friday. And this is one at the checkpoint called Nuevo Progreso in Hidalgo County, Texas, which borders the Mexican state of Tamaulipas. And um, you'll notice here, and there was a whole line of people, as the next photo will show, but we'll look at this one first. Um, uh, there's this one here. This photo shows uh, a woman to the right who was friendly. I didn't identify myself as press. I was just Joe Tourist. Uh, if you identify yourself as press, the, the Customs and Border Enforcement people get a little testy with you. 
So you have to be careful. Anyway, the woman clearly looks probably not Central or South American. She could be from Spain or Argentina, but she looks to be European. The young man next to her uh, looks to be of European extraction. The woman uh, further in who has a piece of tape in her mouth that she's breaking off, and the young man by the food and water sign they're all very well dressed. Uh, their 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 clothes is well are well laundered. They're they're not dirty or scruffy or soiled in any way. Fresh haircuts, fresh makeup. Now we'll look at this next picture. Um, you see the man in the yellow shirt who's sort of looking my way. He looks to be more or less of European extraction. Uh, very well, you know, a very good haircut. Everybody's uh, well-dressed. A lot of them have suitcases like they're going to an airport, but there's a long line going toward the United States in that photo. And I was talking to a woman, and uh, evidently these are people from all around the world, possibly Ukraine, uh, other parts of Europe, um, and so on and so forth. So I could not get a good, solid explanation of what was going on, but it seems that they're coming here... um, arriving in Mexico and wanting to enter the United States through ports of entry, uh, suitcases in tow, children in tow, and um, just uh, basically assimilate themselves in our country in some way, shape, or form. And it's not clear that they're under any kind of economic duress. They're, They're not hungry. They're not lacking clothes. They're not lacking any amenities. And so the people from all sorts of countries are trying to come here and there's not a solid explanation for what's going on as to why they don't just go directly to Texas or directly to a U.S. airport or take the bus into Texas or something like that, why they're, why they're on foot. Um, I'm going to revisit that bridge and try and get more of an explanation for it. But one of the things you don't see, evidently, and this next slide will get into this angle, is Gazans or Palestinians. And Amid all the uh, free and open border antics of the DHS and the long-term policies of the United States government, despite Congress's best efforts and despite the best efforts of the state of Texas, despite all that, um, people from Palestine are generally not allowed in the country. And let's go back to the previous slide on this. Uh, Why is it so hard for Palestinians to enter the U.S. as refugees amid the Gaza conflict uh, Republicans in Congress and on the presidential campaign trail are advocating for a ban on Palestinian refugees coming to the U.S., but already very few Palestinians are admitted. Um, it says here, out of more than 60,000 total refugees resettled in the U.S. in fiscal year 2023, 56 Palestinians were admitted in the past 10 years. Fewer than 600 Palestinians in all have come to the U.S. as refugees, according to the State Department. Now, we'll move on from there. Um, the U.N. has since established the United States uh, United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian refugees in the Near East, but it only provides for aid, not resettlement. Palestinians who do find their way to the U.S. as refugees may be coming from other parts of the world while they they retain their Palestinian citizenship, or they may have been referred as refugees to the U.N. Refugee Agency by non-governmental organizations. A spokesperson for the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service told NBC News neither it nor other traditional refugee advocacy organizations have called for raising the number of Palestinians admitted to the U.S. because of international rules rules that complicate their resettlement. And here it it gets into a number of things, but just to keep it simple, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is virulently Uh, pro-Zionist and pro-Israel, is arguing against any Palestinians coming into the U.S., implying that they're all terrorist or terrorist sympathizers. And in Congress, Republican Representatives Tom Tiffany of Wisconsin and Andy Ogles of Tennessee have introduced the Guaranteeing Aggressors Zero Admissions Act, or the Gaza Act, which would prevent the Biden administration from issuing visas to people with Palestinian Authority passports. So what it boils down to, guys, is that you can be from anywhere in the world, as my bridge photos showed, but uh, the Gazans or Palestinians right now are being given no quarter, even though they arguably are more deserving of, uh, of asylum than probably any people in the world. 
And uh, I think we'll leave it at that for now. I've got some more statistics I can share in extra. But uh, yeah, Palestinians are definitely getting the short end of the stick. Uh, meanwhile, it's an open season at the U.S. border. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Mark. Okay, if uh, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you're welcome to join us as a member uh, and your support very much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, that's at shop.ukcolumn.org. But please share anything you find on ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk on the main website in particular. Now, a couple of quick uh, advertisements tomorrow at 1 p.m., uh, Debbie Evans uh, will be premiering the interview with her, uh, Chris Flowers and Cheryl Granger. This is about uh, Pfizer Report 89. Uh, they're saying it's based on a lie. So we will uh, mention that or that will be 1 p.m. tomorrow in the usual places, ukcom.org slash live, for example. OK, and the one the one we've got on screen at the moment, you're invited to the House of Common Sense talk on Tuesday the 19th of December and that's uh, from 6pm at the Dibean, Didbean Cafe 131 Ridgeway Plimpton Plymouth so if you're in the southwest of England or you're in the Plymouth or Devon or Cornwall area there's a really interesting talk about uh, trees being destroyed but also it's talking about immigration council taxes and uh, guest speaker is the general secretary from the Heritage Party. Um, getting back onto the Pfizer issue for a second, if you uh, remember or remind you that the UK Situation Room Pfizer Modern uh, document analysis up on the UK column website, please do share this. Uh, we've got all the summaries for all the uh, Daily Cloud uh, Pfizer documents uh, analyses, and uh, that is worthwhile sharing and uh, promoting uh, those that work by the Daily Cloud. Uh, and I just want to very briefly remind everybody once again that we have this website. Uh, at fcdospending.ukcolumn.org. And of course, we have not been able to update it uh, since May 2022. Uh, and that is because the UK government has stopped publishing uh, the data, uh, more or less uh, about the time that this website went up. Uh, I have a freedom of information request. I had a freedom of information request out about this uh, in June, uh, July this year. And that was refused by the FCDO because they don't, they, refused on the basis that this data is scheduled for future publication, but they don't say when it's going to be published. And I would like to encourage everybody uh, to start putting some pressure on MPs and others uh, just to try and get this data published, because I think it's important that we know where the uh, ministry or where the foreign commonwealth office is spending its money. Uh, now, let's uh, move to the Middle East very briefly. And first of all, uh, this is uh, Strinda. Uh, and of course, this was attacked by Yemen a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, as a result of that attack and other attacks, uh, including this one, this was a Maersk uh, ship uh, that was attacked uh, last week um, by Yemen. Um, as a result of that, shipping is really no longer able to head through the Red Sea and uh, through the Suez Canal. Uh, and as a result, shipping is having to head round the Horn of Africa, as Vanessa was talking about last week. Uh, and uh, through the Mediterranean in order to get to Israel and other places in the Mediterranean. Uh, so we have another organization here, CMA, has now, uh, they're deeply concerned about attacks on commercial vessels unfolding in the Red Sea region. Uh, they've been take, uh, taking place over the last days. Uh, and uh, so they have now decided that they are not prepared to take their ships uh, through the Red Sea either. Uh, now, as a result, uh, we should mention that uh, the Germans are thinking about sending one of their uh, boats to the Red Sea in order to try to knock down the drones that are causing the damage. Uh, the Royal Navy, of course, is very excited about it, the fact that HMS Diamond uh, has allegedly knocked down one of these drones. Um, the United States claim that they have knocked down 22. I think I think that's the number uh, that they've claimed that they've knocked down. Oh, sorry, 14. Um, and as a result, the US are now claiming that they are forming Operation Prosperity Prosperity Guardian in order to protect shipping going through the Red Sea. Uh, and uh, so we will see whether that comes to anything. But I, I believe that there are something like uh, uh, 18 US ships in the Mediterranean already, including two stri carrier strike groups. We've mentioned that already. Seven of those ships are in the Eastern Med uh, and the rest are uh, in the Red Sea. So. We'll see how many more of them end up in the east, uh, from the eastern Mediterranean into the Red Sea. 
Okay, well, I just wanted to put this headline on because it made me smile. It's BBC, of course, HMS Diamond, British warship shoots down suspected attack drone in the Red Sea. So nobody was too sure what was shot down, but we suspect it was a suspected attack drone. Suspected, yes. <laughs> yes, you have to think about it, but uh, Excellent. incredible. Okay, now uh, we were very privileged over the weekend that in the uh, Sunday Times, uh, uh, the that David Cameron and uh, Annalena Baerbock jointly published this article. Uh, now, that's entitled in the Sunday Times, David Cameron, Why the UK and Germany Back a Sustainable Ceasefire. This, of course, is with respect to uh, Gaza. Uh, and they don't mention uh, uh, Annalena in the headline itself. That's because uh, the, the German version of this was published in Welt am Sonntag. Uh, so uh, they are looking for a sustainable ceasefire. So let's see what uh, David Cameron's saying. We must do all we can to pave the way to a sustainable ceasefire leading to a sustainable peace. Uh, the sooner it comes, the better. The need is urgent, he said in the article. Uh, our goal cannot simply be an ending end to the fighting today. We must, it must be peace lasting for days, years, generations. We therefore support a ceasefire, but only if it's sustainable. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful language, yes. Mike. Uh, he said that Israel has a right to eliminate the threat posed by Hamas. Uh, but too many civilians have been killed. But uh, we've got to make sure that uh, those deaths are sustainable uh, and uh, therefore there's a sustainable ceasefire, apparently. Uh, well, indeed. Uh, wars are good because wars generate huge profits and, of course, keep the politicians effectively in business. Uh, but it's not going well in Ukraine. This is uh, a double-page spread from the Sunday Telegraph, which uh, I held up on screen a few moments ago. And uh, this is the big headline. Of course, Zelensky's been put to the fore and competitors, including um, his uh, senior general, uh, pushed to the back in this photo, but the headline says it all, why Ukraine must not turn its back on Zelensky. Well, the horrible reality is that the uh, war is going very, very badly for Ukraine. Uh, but the article here says that shuttle diplomacy is the best chance to defeat uh, Putin. So as Zelensky shuttles himself from one country to the other, begging more money uh, to keep the war going. The harsh reality is that the war is lost for Ukraine. It is now only a matter of time. Uh, but of course, the West is desperate to keep up the illusion uh, that the war is still going to run to Ukrainians' benefit. And uh, haven't they done a good job? But what I wanted to really highlight, of course, is where the money comes from. I've taken the Kiev Post headline here. The World Bank allocates over a billion dollars to Ukraine, primarily from Japan. Uh, these funds will be directed to the payment of pensions, teachers' salaries, and support of internally displaced persons, allowing Ukraine to focus its internal resources on the needs of the military. What's that? What that is actually saying, of course, is that Ukraine as a nation state has collapsed. It can't afford to run its own systems, its own economy, its own pay systems. Uh, so that money is going to come in from the World Bank, and that will allow the Ukrainians to continue a war where their soldiers are being slaughtered. And uh, let's follow this through a bit more. Um, if you go and look at the World Bank, the, world, the headline here uh, from December the 5th, 2023, World Bank Group Financing Support Mobilization to Ukraine since February the 24th, 2022. So the World Bank, very, very proud that it's actually been... Uh, um, pumping in the money to keep the death and destruction going. And of course, one of the things that's happened is that millions and millions of Ukrainians have been displaced into Western Europe uh, as migrants with all of the problems that entails. But do have a look at the website. Let me just show you this embedded video clip. So I've uh, made this one mobile, if you like, so that you can see all of the money coming in from different countries, the US, UK, Norway, Denmark, Lithuania, Iceland. In it comes millions and billions of pounds. Um, it includes supposedly recovery, relief and reconstruction money. Uh, but here it is that the bankers are f uh, funding the wars to keep it going. And uh, if we just add a little bit here, which I came across on the website, it was a quote from the vice president, development finance of the World Bank Group. And he had this to say, 
Our world is facing unprecedented overlapping crises stemming from the COVID-19 pandemic, conflict and climate change. The pandemic has led to an increase in global poverty, disruptions in human capital accumulation and an erosion of the fiscal space in many developing countries. More than two years into the pandemic, these already stressed countries are now experiencing the global impact of the war in Ukraine. Compounding crises have led to supply chain disruptions that further threaten food and nutri nutrition security and access to energy competitive and growth. All the while, climate change impacts continue to intensify with natural disasters becoming more frequent and damaging to vulnerable countries. So uh, what's he really saying? We at the World Bank are going to help this chaos keep going by pumping in the billions to keep the war in Ukraine, which of course is disrupting uh, food production in Ukraine, but it's also creating the migrants and the uh, follow-on effects in the countries to which they go. So always look at the bankers and where the money is coming from as far as wars are concerned. And uh, here we've got uh, more of the World Bank site where effectively they're boasting of their ability to use uh, civil society organisations to influence and control internal politics in countries around the world. So I'll just drop that over the top of that. The World Bank supposedly helping civil society, but what you've got is bankers and banking money driving uh, the political agendas in nation states throughout the world to a common geopolitical, world geopolitical agenda. Um, okay, let's have, head over to uh, Hong Kong. And uh, a lot of the mainstream press and Western politicians have been uh, very critical of the prosecution of Jimmy Lai. Uh, let's bring him on screen. Uh, so this is from uh, the President of the European Parliament. Today's trial against human rights activist and pro-democracy publisher Jimmy Lai is another attempt at stifling freedom of expression. Uh, Europarl EN, so that's the European Parliament, reiterates its call for Jimmy Lai to be released immediately and unconditionally. Uh, David Cameron, of course, Foreign Secretary, uh, had this to say. Uh, as a prominent and outspoken journalist and publisher, Jimmy Lai has been targeted in a clear attempt to stop the peaceful exercise of his rights to freedom of expression and association. And the hypocrisy here is off the charts. And I'll just give one example of why that is the case. Uh, so if you have a look at uh, uh, Twitter or uh, YouTube, you'll find uh, Nuri Vitachi. Uh, he is saying here, the world is, supposed, uh, is being told that Jimmy Lai is a notable pro-democracy fighter, but his paper opposed universal suffrage for Hong Kong. Uh, now, his paper was uh, Apple Daily, uh, and the long-term links between Apple Daily and the US are extraordinary. Check out the Pentagon link, for example. Um, and he makes the point uh, in the course of this, I recommend people look at this uh, short 12-minute uh, video here. He makes the point uh, that one of the, um, the non-executive directors on the board of the company that published Apple Daily uh, was this man who is now running the company called NewsGuard. And of course, NewsGuard is 100% behind, uh, very much part of the uh, uh, censorship, disinformation, industrial complex, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he, the NewsGuard is pushing the narrative that cer certain uh, news outlets online are not trustworthy uh, and should be shut down. Uh, so they are very keen to see freedom of speech stopped in the West, uh, but apparently uh, keen to promote freedom of speech in other parts of the world, or are they? Uh, I'm just going to suggest there are many, many questions around this, uh, and we need to do a little bit more digging. Right, okay. Uh, sticking with the democracy issue, uh, let's bring uh, Donald Tusk on screen. Um, and uh, this is uh, Donald Tusk from 2019 when he was the president of the European Council. Uh, and at that time, he was saying that he was wanting to make sure that everybody was reminded uh, that Russia is not our strategic partner, that's the EU strategic partner, but our strategic problem. So that was his position. Now, of course, uh, he is now, uh, as of last week, become uh, prime minister in uh, Poland. Uh, and, well, no sooner has the former president of the European Council become the prime minister of Poland, but the European Union has designed to unlock, in inverted commas, the 111 billion euros that it had frozen uh, of Polish funds. And this was because they were accusing the previous Polish regime 
of doing things which were restrictive to the rule of law in Poland. Uh, and so the EU had, uh, in return, effectively sanctioned the Polish government to the tune of $100 billion. But no sooner is the EU's man back in power or in power in Poland uh, and uh, that money gets released. It's amazing how these things happen, isn't it, Brian? It is, and it's the reason why uh, we and the public in UK and indeed the public in nation states worldwide need to be digging very hard into the worldwide banking cons uh, structure uh, where clearly totally unaccountable bankers are able to control money supply, produce money to their entire satisfaction and fund wars and general mayhem. So the more research that's done into these organizations and how they work, the better. But uh, I'm sure it was just a coincidence, really. Yeah, total. Yes. Uh, let's come back to Mark. Uh, and uh, you got a little bit more on COP28, Mark. Uh, yes, I do. This is directly from my own writings, uh, so I call it Reporter's Notebook here. Uh, a brief wrap of COP28 held in the UAE. Of course, it started November 30. It wrapped up uh, December 12, 2023. There's a UN slide here. COP28 agreement signals beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. But as we'll see momentarily, that's not altogether true. Uh, touching on some key parts of this, um, from the quasi-delusional uh, globalist perspective of the European Parliament and those representing the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change at the recent, recently concluded COP28, humanity is on a challenging, noble quest to finally rid the world of dangerous greenhouse gases such as that menacing atmospheric component known as carbon dioxide that dares to help sustain life in the world's miraculous variety of carbon-based carbon-based life forms, excuse me, a key part of this overall process involves COP28's parties embarking on the world's first ever global stock take. This is a major part of uh, of coming out of of COP28. This is an assessment geared towards strictly limiting so-called man-made global warming, nixing the world's supposed overdependence on what COP28 attendees assume our finite fossil fuels and ushering in an envisioned renewable energy utopia. Under this stock take, the COP28 parties will take stock or monitor their collective compliance with the Paris Accord's core provisions, the Paris Accord from 2015. A crucial objective, somehow they're gonna accurately determine that world warming, world warming will actually be limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. That's how they engage it. We'll move on from there. Um, the loss and damage fund is another big part of this. It was established in COP27. I believe that was held in Scotland. It, it was recent. It also adopted a, a decision calling for an orderly transition away from fossil fuels toward climate neutral systems. But the loss and damage fund is another big thing besides, besides the global stock take. That involves the COP28 parties collecting funds to support developing nations facing the impact of climate problems, such as crop destruction from drought or floods. The fund, the, the loss and damage fund, here we go, Brian, will be hosted by the World Bank starting in 2024 for four years. A UN report says $387 billion, with a B, will be needed in this fund annually for developing nations to adapt to changes attributed to the still inconclusive, if not outright erroneous notion, this is my writing, that the climate is changing in the uniquely erratic and dramatic manner that the COP28 parties believe with a religious zeal, and that people are nearly solely responsible for these climate changes. And I'll mention here also that as all this has went along, there's been no dimension, there's, there's been no mention, excuse me, of the, uh, uh, the outrage that some have expressed uh, about African children being enslaved, as is currently the case, mining the key minerals needed for the electric car revolution that we're told is coming. And that's to mine cobalt, to mine lithium, to mine nickel, to mine cadmium. There's been children um, consistently enslaved in Africa to mine those things, and they do a lot of environmental damage to do that mining. There's been no detectable man, uh, um, suggestion at the COP28 uh, about that, that outrage. 
But at any rate, that's the loss and damage fund. That's a big takeaway, as is, of course, moving away from fossil fuels and the global stock take. So those are the main things. The other thing I'll mention is there's a bit of a nuance with this moving away from fossil fuels narrative. Uh, the uh, D.C.-based journal called The Hill in Washington, D.C., uh, quoted a former European climate negotiator named Morgan Bazilian, and he said that um, the transition away from planet-warming fossil fuels, uh, it, it is the first time that such language has appeared in a COP28 agreement, but he also says that with the U.S. being the lead producer now of oil and natural gas, that it's unlikely that there's going to be a sudden or very dramatic move away from fossil fuels in the foreseeable future. In other words, there's indications that that's more um, more of a uh, boastful kind of comment or, or a, a, uh, a, a wishful thinking among some of the COP28 delegates. But in the real world, the, uh, the, the pulling away from fossil fuels is not going to happen immediately by any means. And in fact, may take a lot longer and may not be permanent. So the profits um, from fossil fuels are so great, so-called fossil fuels, that it's, it's debatable whether there's really any teeth to that is what they're getting at. So uh, that's enough for now, guys. Okay, if I can just come in there, Mark. Thank you very much for that. Yes, it's, it's pretty easy, isn't it, to see the linkage between the world banking system and this agenda, and clearly uh, the agenda, whether it's climate change um, or whether it's electric cars even, is uh, a, a, a worldwide agenda, which is then being forced through the political systems of individual nation states. So the policy is clearly being formed at much higher level. And of course, with the bankers able to control billions and trillions and greater sums of money, of course, they've got a, a very strong um, finger in the pie. But uh, for the Christians who watch UK Column, I just wanted to draw your attention back to an article um, that we published some time ago. It was back in 20, let me just have a look, I need my glasses for that, 22nd of January 2021. Uh, it was about Welby's, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, about his Church of England. And the title was Trillions of Pounds for Gaia Greed, but Peanuts for the Parish Paupers. And uh, what this article was highlighting was that the Archbishop of Canterbury was uh, busy uh, hobnobbing with the world's greatest bankers uh, in order to decide how trillions of pounds were to be used to um, counter climate change when he seemed to have no ability to raise money for the repair of churches in UK or indeed help those in poverty in the UK. So I'm really going to stress this for our Christian audience. Uh, if you're a supporter of the Church of England, have a look at that article and start to understand these very dark relationships between the Archbishop of Canterbury in uh, the United Kingdom and international bankers who are clearly on board forming these policies. So I throw that out to you. And if anybody wants to come back to me with any comment, I'll be delighted to take it. Uh, and I just, uh, Mark was mentioning rare earths, uh, so the, the exotic materials that are required for uh, the uh, net zero uh, infrastructure, particularly so-called low car carbon energy production. Uh, just if anybody didn't see Friday's uh, programme, we were talking about this. We were talking about the fact that the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee uh, suddenly has recognised that uh, these uh, materials, uh, the mining of these materials is not a geological issue. It's not a geopolitical issue. Uh, and uh, really, we are going to see a lot more uh, pressure building over the availability of the likes of cobalt and lithium and various rare earth minerals that are required for uh, the wind turbines for EV batteries and so on. So um, there's a lot more uh, to th consider with respect to COP28 uh, then. And just uh, one quick correction, Mark, it wasn't COP27, it was COP26 uh, that was uh, held in Glasgow. Um, so that was where that, that deal was done. Okay, now look, uh, let's come back to Israel and Gaza for a second. And um, Debbie, uh, over the last couple of weeks, has been referring uh, to the 2030 roadmap for UK-Israeli 
relations. And I just wanted to, to run through what that is and uh, give a quick uh, explanation of it. It was signed in March uh, this year when Eli Cohen uh, came to meet the James Cleverly, who was then Foreign Secretary. Um, and uh, this was a tweet that James Cleverly put out at the time. Israel and the UK share a close and historic uh, friendship. Today, they signed the agreement to de uh, deepen that relationship on trade, tech, security, our two countries are taking full advantage of these opportunities. So I just uh, let's just uh, have a look at the scope of this. Well, before we do, this is what uh, they said. The Foreign Secretary and Israeli Foreign Minister uh, will today, this is in March, sign the 2030 Roadmap for UK-Israeli Bilateral Relations, boosting economic security and technology ties. The Roadmap, they said, builds on 75 years of close relations between the two countries and includes shared commitments to tackle the scourge of anti-Semitism. And uh, they said the Foreign Secretary and Foreign Minister Cohen are also expected to discuss the recent spike in violence across, across Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the threat po posed by Iran. And the Iranian issue, of course, is front and center on this. Uh, so let's uh, look at the scope of it. Uh, so they've had headline uh, items here on dis diplomacy, on defense and security, on economy, on cyber, on science. Uh, on technology, on climate, on health, on development, and of course, on gender, because there's nothing else uh, that's more important than gender, is there? Uh, particularly when you're trying to influence the uh, culture of a country. Um, and uh, this, is, uh, this is one of the items that they mentioned, the Holocaust Memorial. And they said uh, in, in March that uh, UK will open a new National Holocaust Memorial and Learning Centre to stand as a reminder of why we must be relentless in the fight against Holocaust denial and distortion and anti-Semitism. Now, of course, uh, Ben was talking about this a couple of weeks ago when he was making the point that the UK already has a National Holocaust Memorial. It's uh, in Nottinghamshire, uh, so it's not in London, and so it's place that is the problem here. Uh, but you know, even so, there's not much discussion or dissent about the idea of having one, the issue that has arisen over where is where it's going to be. And as Ben was talk, talking about a couple of weeks ago, the location of it is in Victoria Tower Gardens, just beside the Palace of Westminster, right beside the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Uh, and this is what that uh, park looks like at the moment with the memorial to slavery here. And this is what they want it to look like. Uh, and you can see the Buxton Slavery Memorial just at the back of the picture there. Um, so this is what they're planning for this new National Holocaust Memorial. Uh, this is what it'll look like from the inside. Uh, but as I say, there is uh, dissent uh, because people aren't arguing about whether it should exist, but where it should exist. So this is the uh, Royal Parks opposing the plans. In fact, Westminster Council opposes the plans. Many others oppose the plans. But you may remember that a few weeks ago at the King's Speech, uh, the Holocaust Memorial Bill uh, was announced, and this was launched by Michael Gove, uh, who is a conservative friend of Israel and a acclaimed Zionist, uh, saying that therefore this, they need to effectively change the planning legislation or override the planning legislation to make this go through, because the government is absolutely determined that no matter what anybody locally thinks, uh, this is so important, uh, probably as a result of this new bilateral uh, relations agreement uh, that this goes ahead. Uh, what else were they talking about? Iran, of course, we will work, close, work closely to counter the current threats from Iran, including the Republican Guard. Uh, we'll work to ensure Iran never has nuclear weapons capabilities. We'll seek to counter Iran's destabilizing regional activity, including weapons transfers conducted either by itself or through proxies. And we'll confront the threat posed to us, uh, both domestically. Uh, Britain Israel Investment Group was announced, uh, and uh, that is where Israel and the UK will partner on joint technology projects, both in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Uh, and the key thing is here that they want to uh, draw, particularly countries in Southeast Asia, closer to them, uh, it's closer to this orbit of what they describe as free market economies. And what this is really talking about is exactly what Vanessa was talking about a couple of weeks ago, uh, the US, India, Saudi, EU unveiling their alternative to the Belt and Road. So this is uh, attempting to uh, draw people away from what China and Russia are doing, 
and back into the sphere of influence of the West. Um, what else are they talking about here? They're worried about the increasing threats in cyberspace, particularly, uh, and so they want to have cooperation between Israel and the UK. That's particularly vital in order to counter efforts by malign forces, uh, including through bilateral cooperation on critical national infrastructure. Now, of course, we've had the furore over Huawei uh, and uh, Huawei's telecoms equipment being on the UK's telecoms networks. And the reason that there's been pushback from the British government on this finally uh, is because uh, of the perception that uh, Huawei uh, would be spying on telecommunications traffic on those networks. And of course, as we've reported on this program, uh, the reason for that concern is because most of this infrastructure is now being deployed as what's described as dual use. So it has civilian uh, purposes, as it always has, for us to run our telecoms over and the internet and so on, but also intelligence agencies and the military using it as well. So they can't have Chinese uh, influence on there, but they can have uh, they can have Israeli companies. So um, let's just uh, look at this because, of course, one of the key uh, links that came about as a result of this is the connection between GCHQ and uh, Unit 8200, which is the Israeli equivalent of GCHQ. Uh, and uh, of course, 8200 has spawned so many companies. Uh, for example, Checkpoint. My checkpoint provides firewall devices to just <laughs> probably it's the ubiquitous uh, firewall solution for most companies around the world, has been for many, many years. And so if we're talking about people snooping on network traffic, I don't know whether a checkpoint is phoning home uh, on this, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, also, links to Infosys, who we all know is uh, uh, run and owned by uh, David Camp, uh, sorry, Rishi Sunak's uh, father-in-law. Uh, and uh, who else have we got here? Uh, also connected to uh, 8200 is NSO Group. Uh, and they, of course, are famous for the Pegasus spyware, which uh, once installed on your mobile phone, effectively turns your mobile phone into a bug for the intelligence agencies. So um, I would uh, question concerns to some degree about uh, uh, Huawei equipment being on telecoms uh, networks whenever we've got infrastructure like this. Uh, there and with uh, these types of uh, connections between uh, U UK and US and Israeli companies and so on. Uh, and then what else are they talking about here? Uh, of course, climate change. So climate change is a major part of this new agreement as well, uh, including on food tech regulation, uh, flood management and supporting technology solutions which combat climate change or mitigate, adapt to the challenges of climate change. And then, of course, we've got life sciences collaboration. This is something that uh, Debbie has been talking about so much over the last period. Uh, so they agreed to fund at least six collaborative research projects via BIRACS and develop a life science pillar that's part of the Britain-Israel partnership, exploring research areas such as AI and healthcare, engineering, bio, biology, and biotechnology. And I just wanted to highlight uh, BIRACS here because, of course, this is a program uh, which is run through uh, the British Council, the great uh, organ of British soft power, um, and also the British Embassy in Israel, together with the Paris Foundation. So, um, you know, this is an all-encompassing agreement. Uh, I'm not aware, Brian, that we've seen anything of quite such scope with any other country, actually. Uh, well, I don't think so, although we must recognise the ongoing, if we like, special relationship with the United States. That means all sorts of material is, is shared. But on the other hand, you can say that America can be incredibly defensive about its commercial secrets and wanting to give priority to American companies over and above everybody else, including the UK, despite that special relationship. But for me, this is truly something very, very sinister. Um, I, I know that there are many people in our audience that think because this is Israel, this means it's automatically okay. But the reality is we cannot trust our own government at the moment. Uh, we can see them hiding information, as you've described, with the funding uh, spend for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And uh, we cannot get debate in Parliament on simple matters in this country. Now, apparently, behind closed doors, we're in partnership with Israel. Does that mean that we now have to agree and accept with every policy that comes out of Netanyahu's uh, government? Will he be speaking in the best interests of 
of uh, citizens in UK. I have strong doubts about this, but I'm now beginning to wonder with the lobbying for our politicians through organisations like BICOM itself, uh, are we living in UK or have we moved into a new phase where we are taking on some dual nationality, uh, which means that if you dare criticise anything to do with this partnership, you're going to be silenced under anti-Semitic labels. There are some very, very serious things for our audience to consider. And uh, if you are a Christian, you need to think very carefully about what you're seeing and test it as to whether it has honesty and true validity or we're seeing some form of political deception being assembled in front of our very eyes. Mm. Well, we're at the end of the news, so we must uh, leave there. We'll say to Mark, thank you very much for joining us. There will be an extra uh, coming up in a few minutes. So if you're a subscriber of UK Column, uh, join us for that. I've got a little bit of animation showing you some of the figures to do with immigration. So that could be of interest to you. Uh, but we'll say big thank you to everybody wherever you are in the world and a huge thank you for the people who are generous enough to subscribe and su support us financially. We can only do this with your financial support. Thanks very much. See you in extra. Bye-bye.